John 4. Tonight we're looking at a passage in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. And in this narrative, you get a fly-on-the-wall perspective, a narrated behind-the-scenes glimpse into the life and work of Jesus. And we get to listen in to a conversation that he has with a woman at the well. Before that, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, your grace is sufficient. We thank you that we've sung so many songs about your holiness and who you are and about this all-sufficient Christ that you've sent for us. God, we pray that your word would not go out void today. We thank you that it will not, but God, we pray that I would not get in the way, but Christ would be presented and exalted. So God, we pray that you give us wisdom and understanding your word, and we just praise you for this opportunity to come before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So our goal tonight is to see the wider picture of how this passage lines up and fits with the author's clear purpose for the whole letter. And the Apostle John, who wrote this evangelistic letter, spells out clearly his purpose statement. You don't find that in every book of the Bible, but here you do. And in John 20, verse 31, at the very end of the book, John says these words, for these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's purpose is to communicate eyewitness testimonies, signs and miracles that point to who Jesus is. They point to Jesus. And why is this? Well, so people can have life in his name. That's the purpose of John's gospel, Jesus, and life in Jesus. Now, so far in this gospel, because we're literally plopping down into chapter four, there's three that come before this. I can do maths. So far, from chapters one through three, Jesus has been described and called many things. Like the word, as in chapter one, he's the word that made flesh, the creator, the lamb of gods, the Messiah, king of Israel. And up till now, Jesus' ministry has primarily been to the Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. However, in chapter three, we get a fuller insight and a glimpse into Jesus' mission. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the son came, in, came to show God's love to the world and to whoever, whoever believes. And most Jews back then would have thought that Jesus came for the Jews and for Israel. They are awaiting a savior Yet in verse 42 of our passage, it's presented Jesus is the savior of the world. And tonight we're going to consider several ways in which this passage reveals to us that Jesus' mission was not limited to the Jews only, but he truly is the savior of the world. Well, in this book with a purpose statement like this, we should expect to find a treasure trove of details about Jesus in this passage, and we do. So let's take a, look, a step back just to get a survey of what this tells us about Jesus. So in the first couple verses, we see Jesus is having some sort of opposition with the Jewish religious leaders. We see that he was coming from Jerusalem to Galilee. We see Jesus, his humanity and the fact that he was thirsty, he was hungry, he was weary. We see his deity and the fact that he knows all about the woman. In verse 10, he is the gift of God that gives living water. In 26, it says he is the Messiah, the Christ. 
Verse 34, we see that he was sustained by the, doing the will and the work of God. And he, test, he has testified at the very end, again, as the savior of the world. There's so much in this passage. There's so much. We could be here sufficiently into the night unpacking each one of these details. But however, we're going to hone in on several key aspects tonight, keeping in mind the writer's main purpose and intent to show us who Jesus is, what he has done so that people can come to know him, believe in him, and have life in him. That's what we're looking at today. So first off, who is this Jesus and what is he like? And we see in the first several verses, verse one to seven, several things about who this Jesus is. We see that he's both a purposeful and a relational savior. So he's purposeful in the way, if you look, it says that he's on his way to Galilee. It says he had to go to Galilee, verse four. Now, that was not the only route, if you look at a map, it's not the only route from Jerusalem to Galilee, sandwiched in between was Samaria, or Samaria, pardon, I have Samaria, Samaria, it was pardoned in between was Samaria. And so back then there was multiple routes from Jerusalem to Galilee. Yet it, the text says Jesus had to go to Galilee, or had, had to go through Samaria. But, which is interesting because the common route for a Jewish religious leader was to bypass Samaria completely and entirely. They'd actually go across the Jordan River, go up along the Jordan, and then cross back over into Galilee, staying completely out of Samaria, away from the unclean Samaritans. And the Jewish teachers actually had this saying that said it was far better to walk in a ditch on the side of the road than to potentially cross shadows with a Samaritan. So now it's important that we understand what the big deal is with these Samaritans and why they were so despised by the Jews to understand why this is so important. So John gives us a helpful insight in verse nine. What does he say? Jews have no associations or dealings with Samaritans. Why? Well, the reason lies in a historical reason. We've been going through 1 Kings. You see bits bits and pieces there, it originates dating from the division of the kingdom of the death, after the death of Solomon when the north and southern kingdoms were divided and then we see the Assyrians coming in and taking over this northern territory of Samaria in 722 BC. The Assyrians then brought their own people and resettled the area which meant the loss of both racial purity and religious purity. They lost racial purity because the Assyrians brought their own people so they would intermarry with the Jews that were left in that area. And they lost religious purity because as those foreign people came to Samaria, they brought their pagan worship of their foreign gods and there was a mixing. Those, those Samaritans still held on to some Jewish beliefs. They rejected every book after the fifth book of the Old Testament. And to make matters worse, the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim and then the Jews sometime later came and destroyed that temple. So it deepened the rift between them. But the Jews, the Jews loathed the Samaritans. They were religious heretics, apostates, social outcasts to be avoided. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as wretched, unclean half-breeds who had no value and no lot in the true worship of God through Jerusalem. But this Samaria is where Jesus 
had to go. He was not limited by geographic borders. He was, not, he was purposeful in his travels. So next, we see this purposeful savior is relational. We see he's relational um, when we see what he do, what does he do? He stops at the well because he's tired and thirsty and his disciples go into town to buy food and who comes? It's a woman. And to the woman's utter astonishment, what does he do? Jesus speaks to her. And neither race, gender, religion, or sin could stand as a barrier to Jesus, the savior of the world. Now, if we step back for a second, there's a, there's a, a stark contrast between this divine appointment that Jesus had with this woman and the conversation that Jesus had in the chapter before, the third chapter of John. Jesus spoke with a religious leader in the previous chapter who was Jewish, he was male, and he was morally upright. Here we have this woman who was complete opposite. She had two major things going against her. First, she was Samaritan, and secondly, she was a woman. And in that culture, there were no women's right campaigns, no equal opportunity lobbies, no, no women were looked down upon. They were believed to be below men in every way. And let me tell you, that is not the biblical complementarian view that we, that we have. But most women were not publicly educated and seen as, they were, they were actually seen as unable to be educated, which is sad. And men hardly, if ever, talked to their wives in public, let alone a single Jewish man never would have been seen or ever would have thought of talking to a Samaritan woman in public. It was utterly taboo, unheard of, and unthinkable. And that's what this Jesus does. Furthermore, in verse six, we get a greater insight into who this woman was. We see it was the sixth hour, or here it says it was about noon. In Roman time, the sixth hour is about noon, and the normal time for drawing water was not the sixth hour. It was either late or early in the day so as to escape the heat. But this woman comes in the middle of the day in the blistering heat. But why does she do this? She was most likely try, some, some sort of a social outcast, probably related to her many marriages that we're, we heard of in, chap, in, in verse 18 that we'll look at again. But it's, it's so much... It's likely she was trying to avoid the criticism and judgments of other women. So we see this woman coming to the well. Now, she comes to a well, and I couldn't help, but wells play significant themes or parts in the Bible. But it's not your picturesque wishing well with a nice small pitched roof and a hanging bucket. No, often they were just a deep hole in the ground with a small wall around it to keep things from falling in. And it was really usually BYOB, bring your own bucket. But additionally, wells have often played important roles as meeting places in the biblical storyline. They pop up here and there. As in Genesis 24, Abraham sent his servant to find his son a wife. And he goes to where he was headed. And where does he go? He goes to a well. And he, f he met Rebekah, Isaac's future wife. Jacob in Genesis 29, fleeing his brother, met his future wife Rachel at a well. Moses fleeing Egypt, meets Zipporah at a well. So wells were common meeting places. And often, where the magic happens. But there were no single social events. If you wanted a wife, you went to where the women often went. And, and more often than not, it was the women who drew the water. And they usually did this in groups for safety and convenience. 
And it was this kind of social gathering, like the old Scottish washwoman, they would gather together to wash clothes, natter and gossip about this, that, leaving no social stone unturned. This is what that woman was avoiding. She came alone, not expecting to meet anybody. But her background did not hinder or deter Jesus. He relationally initiates and carries on a conversation with her, speaking to her in a manner which she understands. He started with earthly things. What does he say? Give me a drink. And then seamlessly through the conversation transitions to spiritual things. For that is the reason and the purpose of this whole conversation. Jesus was not limited by cultural prejudices and the common traditions of man at the time. He came as the purposeful savior of the world who could relate not just to Jewish religious men, but even to women like this. So now here's a hard reality. In every city, there are often people and places we try to avoid. There are people or places that some may look down upon, and as a Jew, to the, like a Jew to the Samaritans, I know in Kilmarnock there was the scheme that was on TV and it was made, painted in a horrible light. And I've heard people slander it right, left, and center. And I've worked with the kids in the scheme and, and yes, there are bad things that happen in there. But the whole place got tarred with a bad brush. But how about ourselves? Are there places that, and people that we do not want to go to or look down upon? Like the homeless drug addict the man on the street, the man selling the big issue, the traveler, the foreign national, or someone from another race, age, or culture, do you think that God saved you because of you were more deserving than they? Friends, Jesus crossed geographic and social boundaries to talk to this immoral social outcast of a woman. Jesus never showed an unrighteous prejudice or bias. Maybe we need to start living more purposeful and relational lives. Think of your commute to work or lunch break, or neighborhood, are there people you could talk to? You could start a conversation like, Jesus, could I have a drink? Maybe invite them to church, maybe tell them about Jesus. It's much easier to avoid the hard situations in life, putting your headphones and sunglasses on, and just tuning out on the tram. But maybe if we lived lives as more purposeful, relational disciples, we would see more people come to Christ. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Samaritans were, the, were, were Jesus' neighbors. Who are yours? And how could you go about reaching them? But we see Jesus crossing these boundaries as a purposeful and relational savior. But we, but we just saw Jesus going to this well with a purpose. He's relational as communication, but he's not looking just to pass the time with some small chat. His purpose is to reveal himself to this woman. But what did he what did he come specifically to do? What did Jesus do? And that's the next point we're going to look at. Who this Jesus was, but what did he come to do? So in this section, we get, a further, we get to further listen into this conversation. It would take me all night if I read each section. That's why we had Matt read it before. It's 42 long verses. So follow along. I'll try to give you references as where I'm dropping in on. But in this section of, from verse 9 to 26... Right in the midst of the conversation, we get to further listen into this conversation. And beyond the shocking fact that Jesus is speaking to this woman, we learn several important aspects about what he came to do. Simply, we see him that Jesus came to offer and give life. 
And in verse 7 to 14, we see Jesus came to offer life. So after Jesus asks the woman for a drink, what does the woman say? How could you ask me for a drink? You're Jewish and a man and I'm a woman. You're Samaritan. What does Jesus say back? Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And in these verses, Jesus offers this woman eternal thirst-quenching living water. He says if she would have known who he was, the gift of God, she would have asked him and he would have given her this living water. But does she get it? Often, we find people don't. And as, just as we find people don't, we tell them the gospel, she doesn't get it. She wants her physical thirst dealt with. And honestly, that makes sense. In a hot, arid desert, where there are no instant cold taps and fridges, no ice cubes, ice creams, bottled water, and actually getting, getting water was an ordeal. You had a massive pitcher, you had to carry it, maybe 100 yards, maybe 400, maybe a mile, maybe a couple miles. I find you might drink all the water before you get home. But what does she say? She almost cheekily responds to Jesus. She says, how can you draw water from this deep well when you have nothing to draw with? And are you greater than the one who gave us this well? Well, there's no question that can take Jesus back. He, he then clarifies what he means by contrasting these two waters. We have this physical water that's coming from this hole in the ground. And we have this living water that Jesus is offering. And he's saying, those who drink from the well will thirst again. But those who drink from the living water will never thirst again. Verse 13 and 14. Well, no, no matter how many times a person returns to that physical well, no ma- no much, and no matter how much water they drink, they will always thirst. But this living water that Jesus is offering this woman quenches the deepest thirst of the human soul. And this gift of living water that Jesus is speaking of is salvation and the life that results from believing the gospel. From faith in Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit's transforming work in a person. One source leaves you thirsty perpetually, the other quenches eternally. So living water here is symbolic of the life that Christ alone offers. And the fact that he's offering it to an immoral Samaritan woman in contrast to the religious leader in chapter three shows us the all-encompassing spectrum and nature of this offer. This whosoever gospel, as we saw in John chapter three. And and the Bible and history are chock full of imperfect people being transformed and changed by God's grace. And from the person in the deepest, darkest pits of sin to the hard-hearted, lofty, religious person, Jesus shows no partiality or no bias in his offer. But why do so many reject it? To have your thirst eternally quenched, your deepest longings, why reject it? We know what the Bible presents to us, that man is spiritually dead, deaf and blind, and in need of new life. Yet there's a verse in Jeremiah chapter two that sheds light onto the problem. God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hoed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This means that instead of going to God for life, people go everywhere else. 
Yet all these other places are things like broken jars or cisterns that won't hold water. They cannot ultimately fulfill, satisfy, or quench a soul's deepest thirst. And so I wonder what broken cisterns you have honed out for yourself. Where other than God are you seeking life, purpose, fulfillment? Is it relationships? Is it security? Is it sex, drugs, alcohol, television, shopping, your appearance, your status? And, but oftentimes, the things we are seeking or people are seeking are not entirely bad in themselves. They're actually fairly good things if you think about it. Family, friends, careers, none of these things were ever intended to fill the longing of the human heart. The heart of man's problem is the problem of man's heart and only God can fix it. That is why Christ came. But most people spend their entire lives seeking for that one thing or person that might quench their thirsty soul. And they might find momentary fulfillment, but eventually they are left thirsty again. Only God who created man can ultimately, ultimately satisfy man. But Jesus did not come just to make an offer, an offer that he could not fulfill. He came to give life as the giver of life. And in verses 15 to 26, we see Jesus came to give life. And in this section, we see this woman was still not getting it. I can say, how could you not get it? We, we, have, the whole, we have the whole thing here. How is she not getting it? She, Jesus was pro progressively revealing himself to her. First, he was a Jew. Then we see, are you the prophet? Are you greater than this? But Jesus go, carries on in this conversation with this woman. We see, she, we see her spiritual blindness is still in the way. She, what does she ask for? She asks, but she does ask for this living water. She does not, but she doesn't, she doesn't get it right away. Jesus doesn't just, oh, here, oh, you want it? Here you go. And you have to ask Why? Well, you might say because she saw nothing wrong with receiving this water and continuing to live immorally. She wanted the water, but she wanted it on her own terms. She wanted the water, but she didn't want to change any of her lifestyle because she didn't honestly think Jesus knew about her lifestyle. But Jesus, what does he do in verse 18? He reveals to this woman the broken cisterns in her life he teaches her about true worship, and he gives her life. So how does this woman get from not getting it, not getting who Jesus is, to receiving it, receiving this life? Well, Jesus, being God, knew this woman and revealed her sin. And even though it must have been painful to her to have her sin exposed, it was necessary. This woman wanted, to, wanted this living water and so Jesus shows her that she wasn't seeking God's but fulfillment and satisfaction in men and relationships. And Jesus opened her eyes to the futility of these pursuits. These wells have and always will leave her thirsting. But the woman doesn't just fall on her knees and repent there. She just about sidesteps the issue. And I think this is common when we're confronted with something, it's easier to be like, change the subject. And that's what she does maybe in hope of steering Jesus away from the sin issue, but Jesus has her in his sights. She raises, she raises a religious controversy. He just said, you have five husbands, actually, and the one you're living with is, no longer, is not your husband, and she goes, what about this religious issue? That's what she does. She kind of sidesteps it. 
But what does Jesus do? He tells her that the time is coming. He answers her objection, still with the trajectory of revealing himself to her. He says, he tells her that the time is coming when neither in Mount Gerizim in Samaria or in Jerusalem will true worshipers worship. And how is this? Because the time is coming and is now here. But what does he mean by that? He is speaking of the coming of his death, the death on the cross, that he will die, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, where he would complete this redemption and thus create true worshipers. Jesus' point is that in light of his coming as Messiah and Savior, worshipers will be identified not by a particular shrine or location, but by the worship of the Father in, sp- in spirit and in truth through the Son. He's not confined to a building or worshiped on our terms. He's a spirit. God is everywhere. And this drives a nail in the coffin of religion that says it's all about what you do and where you do it. No, to get right with God, we don't need wonderful buildings, though they're magnificent. We don't need special clothes or religious rituals as the Jews in back then said you did. And this is not a question, the whole spiritual worship of, of he's seeking worshipers in spirit and truth is not a, a question about what type of music or posture we take either. It's not about whether you have your hands up or hands down, hands in your pockets or hands crossed. This is not what God is talking about here. God wants true worshipers who give him everything, all the time, everywhere. And this is only possible because of Jesus. You see what he's, what he's come to do? But Jesus came to earth fully God and fully man. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He willingly went to the cross where he thirsted. What is this woman? She's coming to the well to deal with her thirst. What is Jesus asking her? Give me a drink, I'm thirsty. The next time we hear, I thirst, it's on the cross. Jesus, he thirsted and drank from not a, not a cup of water to quench his thirst, but the cup of suffering. And he took on God's wrath against sin, paying the price we could never pay, dying and rising again three days later, proving he had conquered the grave, making salvation and peace with God possible and offerable to the whole world. At the cross is where God's justice and mercy met. A just and righteous God can now pardon and forgive wicked, rebellious sinners like me because Jesus died for me and he died for sinners. This life then is available for all who simply believe. Salvation or this living water is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Praise God that it doesn't depend on my abilities. Jesus is the savior of the world. But Jesus answers her historical objection and then he reveals himself to her. He says, I am he. And you might just say, well, that if you just read over it, good, cool, God, Jesus said, I am he. But that, that word, ego and me, he's claiming divinity there. He's claiming divinity, Yahweh. He's claiming to be God in, in the flesh here. And he reveals himself to, to not just, he didn't reveal himself this way to Nicodemus, the religious leader, but to a despised Samaritan woman. That's huge. And whether this was the moment this woman was given this living water or this new life, we don't exactly know. But what we do see is we see her response. 
and her response does evidence to us a real change. Because in this next section, 27 to 42, we see several responses because what should be the response to this Jesus and what he came to do? We see three responses actually. We see the Samaritan woman who believes. We see the disciples who are astonished. And we see a revival that breaks out among the Samaritans. So first, we're gonna concentrate mostly on the woman here. The first response is the Samaritan woman. What does she do? She, she, She hears this from Jesus that he is the Christ, and she leaves her water jar, the thing that she'd carried all the way to the well. She left the empty vessel she brought to fill with physical water, and she left filled with living water with an urgent testimony of God's grace. This new life was welling up inside of her, and often a fruit of genuine conversion of a new life. You see it in new believers often. It's It's exactly what the woman does. She opens her mouth and speaks to who Jesus is. And notice, if you read this, she doesn't use clever arguments or well-crafted evangelistic apologetic sermons. She simply opens up her mouth and shares about Jesus, the Jesus whom she met, who he is and what he had done for her. She simply says, come and see and often people are so worried about having such fine crafted testimonies and it's, it's important that we, that we say the right words, yes. But often it's fear, fear of being asked a question we can't answer. And sometimes, sometimes that drives us never to share our faith. That is not what we see here. We see this woman speaking out of the abundance of her mouth, of the abundance of her heart, this new life bubbling over as a spring and a testimony to what Jesus has done in her life. She is drinking from this living water. And J.C. Ryle in his excellent commentary on John has these sobering words. He says, that which the Samaritan woman did, all true Christians ought to do too, likewise. The church needs it. The state of the world demands it. Common sense points out that is right. Everyone who has received the grace of God and tasted that Christ is gracious ought to find words to testify to Christ to others. Where's our faith, he says, if we believe that souls around us are perishing and that Christ alone can save them and yet so many hold their peace? Where's our love if we can see others going down to hell and yet say nothing to them about Christ and salvation. We may well doubt our own love to Christ if our hearts are never moved to speak to him. We may well doubt the safety of our own souls if we feel no concern about the souls of others. End quote. Friends, if you're a Christian here, when is the last time you shared the simple good news of what Christ has done in your life? We sung all these glorious songs about this glorious Savior. Have you ever opened your mouth and simply said, come and see this Jesus? Is it fear, unbelief, sin? What is holding you back? Sharing this living water to a dying and thirsty world. Believers, let us open up our mouths and proclaim the glorious gospel. Share to this lost and dying world, Christ, the gift of God, who offers soul-satisfying, spiritual, thirst-quenching, living water to the world. It's an offer for all men. And if you're a believer, if you're not a believer here tonight, 
come and see. Come and see. We've just looked at who this Jesus is and what he has come to do, what he has done in the life of a social outcast, of a woman who is not searching for God, but God sought her. Christ called her and invited her to come to the fountain and drink. What are you trying to find satisfaction in? Are you just going from one thing to the next? One thrill, one high, one religious service, one relationship. How long will you continue to search and seek and drink from everything but God's free offer through Christ? Come to Christ today. Be saved today. Today is the day of salvation. Stop running from God and turn to him and live. And this passage concludes with an astonished bunch of disciples and a revival amongst the Samaritans who proclaimed Jesus as the savior of the world. So from the righteous Nicodemus to the immoral Samaritan, there's hope for everyone. There's hope for the world, there's hope for you. Christians, don't let your love grow cold. Don't get stuck in religious tradition. Delight in your savior. Treasure Christ. Ask God to help you and you won't be able to stop talking about him. And if you're not a believer, please don't ignore Jesus and his offer to you. Look to Jesus to see the character of God's grace. He comes to us. He initiates us. He offers life to the least deserving, and he delights to give it. I conclude with these words from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, not just Jerusalem, not just religious people, but the world, that he gave his only son, Jesus, our purposeful and relational savior who, who both offers and gives life, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, come and see, come and see Jesus, the amazing savior of the world. Please bow your head with me as we pray.